You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf. And welcome once again to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community. I am uh, Ben Wolf, uh, EOS implementer, fractional integrator here in the New York area, Wolf Sage Consulting. And um, we are going to learn today from our guests uh, how business owners and leadership teams looking to grow from 10 to 100 or 100 to 1,000 can avoid disasters based on mistakes they might make from their own cognitive biases. Um, and uh, again, if this show is adding value for you, I encourage you to, uh, to subscribe, leave a review, uh, make it more available to others through that process. Uh, get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you usually get your podcasts. And uh, with that reminder, I will get right to it. Uh, excited to have our, our guest on today. Um, so by way of introduction, uh, he is a cognitive neuroscientist and a behavioral economist. Uh, the author of a new book that just came out, uh, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Uh, he has been interviewed on CBS, ABC, NBC. Uh, he has articles featured in Inc., um, Online Magazine, Scientific American, Psychology Today, among many others. Uh, he has over 15 years in academia, including seven of those as a professor at Ohio State University. Um, He's published dozens of peer-reviewed articles and scholarly journals. You can learn more about uh, about him, and we'll repeat this later, at DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. You can learn more about him. And uh, with that, I give you Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Welcome, Gleb. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate that kind introduction. <laughs> no problem. My pleasure. Uh, so what I like to ask people that come on here is, you know, we're going we're gonna to be speaking about, you know, avoiding you know, disaster avoidance as your, uh, as your book and your website is called and, and cognitive biases and your background in that. And one thing I think is, you know, is always, always helpful for people is to understand, um, just like if you could give us a quick two minute history, just kind of a context. So we have a context for how you came into get interested in and learn about and, you know, become an authority kind of on this topic. Well, my interest in this topic actually started when I was a kid, when I saw my parents making some really bad financial decisions. They actually fought a lot over finances and other related issues. And I already as a kid saw that it was kind of stupid, the things that they were fighting about. Uh, the worst thing was the when my dad, so my dad was a real estate agent and he had a variable mm -hmm. income because he worked in commissions. And one time he hid some money from my mom and invested it separately, kind of bought an apartment elsewhere. And then in a couple of years, once my mom found out, she was very pissed, very upset, very frustrated. They had a big blowout fight. You know, uh, they separated for a while, actually. And <laughs> they eventually got back together. But oh, wow. it sorry. was never the same. Like, she couldn't trust him again. No, I mean, and that really shaped me as a kid, kind of having that experience. And so I saw mm. the kind of terrible consequences that can be had in family life in from bad financial decisions. And then when I grew up, so I was born in 81, I grew up, I came of age, I was 18 in 1999, when the dot-coms were booming, Webvan, Pets.com, Boo.com, and a lot of other ones, and tech leaders were mm -hmm. partying like it's 1999 for that, who remembers that Prince <laughs> song. And so yeah, yeah. <laughs> then in a couple of years, 
in 2002, when I was 21, they went bust. All of those companies went bust. People lost millions and billions and billions of dollars. And lots of people, you know, small investors lost their life savings. And that was just really terrible. Right. People suffered a lot. Even worse was when top business leaders at Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, and several other companies chose to use fraudulent accounting methods to hide their losses. And that caused a great mm -hmm. deal more suffering and distrust in the business community. So that was really bad and obviously bad decisions, even for these people. I mean, they only delayed the reckoning by a year or two. They eventually actually, when it was much worse for them, they went to jail and they lost their reputation. They lost a lot of money. So that was really bad for them, of course, that they chose right. to make these really bad decisions, but they made these bad decisions. So, I mean, as someone, I really care about uh, avoiding suffering. My values are utilitarian, which means wanting the most good for the most number. So I decided mm -hmm. to see what I can do about this topic. I started studying this topic, started studying cognitive biases, which are the errors that we make as human beings because of the way that our brain is wired. We can talk more about them later in the show. But for my context, yeah. so I got into training, consulting, and coaching. I've been doing this for over 20 years, training, consulting, and coaching on these topics. And then I also went into higher academia. And I did a lot of research on these topics for over 15 years in higher academia, published books about them, published articles about them. That's how I got all the prominent uh, shows that Ben mentioned at the beginning. And yes, and so I some up my experience consulting coaching for leaders and training leaders as well as the cutting edge research on how to address overcome cognitive biases and my new book never go with your gut mm -hmm. how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters so that's my context okay well that is definitely a, a clear answer and 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 definitely particularly interesting for for me right now obviously this is not not something i know much about uh, but I am in the middle of reading, uh, you know, and we talked about that on this on our call before, is, uh, you know, Daniel Kahneman's uh, book, The Nobel Prize Winning Economist, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, about the two types of, you know, about the two types, system one, system two, and the whole, the whole thinking, um, uh, you know, the way people make decisions and, and really kind of laying, laying out the problem on cognitive biases and, and, and definitely want to get more into that now. Um, but starting on a more, if you don't mind, starting on a more practical note, though, uh, what what do you see, just practically speaking? You know, again, the audience people here, you know, the people in this this uh, win win entrepreneurial community are, uh, you know, are, are people with or on the leadership teams involved in entrepreneurial businesses. So, what I guess to you know to to maybe put a finer point on the problem with entrepreneurial business owners and leadership teams is. What do you see, uh, you know, you've, you've been doing this for a while. What do you see are like the biggest pitfalls, the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurial businesses, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, 10 to 250 people in size, like what kind of, what are the biggest mistakes in decision-making that they're making? And what are those cognitive biases that they're falling prey to? The biggest ones I see for entrepreneurial business owners who are growing their business, one of the biggest problems is in actually in strategic planning. I've seen, there are a number of studies, so let me give you a study first. There was a really interesting study mm -hmm. done of actually big companies, companies that went bankrupt that were worth 500 million and more from 1981 to 2007. And looking at those companies, 
the scholars Chunkamui and uh, in Billion Dollar Lessons is going to be the book on that that you can check out. They found that there were 423 companies that went bankrupt. They looked at the reasons for bankruptcy and they found that 46% of the causes for bankruptcy purely came from really bad strategic decision making by the leadership. Not implementation, mm -hmm. not external causes, not something else, purely bad strategic mm -hmm. decision making by the leadership. That's 46%. And of course, a lot of the other 54% could have been addressed in part, the bankruptcy might have been addressed by better strategic decision making. But 46% for the biggest companies out there. If you look at small businesses, you'll see that about half of them, entrepreneurs, startups fail within five years, about two thirds of them fail within 10 years. And the causes mm -hmm. for a lot of that failure come from bad strategic planning, bad strategic decision making. So there is a specific cognitive bias that is a companies that bad strategic planning called the planning fallacy. Now, the planning okay. fallacy has to do with our intuitions and our desires and our gut instinct. We feel that we are smart entrepreneurs. I'm a small entrepreneur. I own a training, consulting, coaching company of six people. So you know, I know what that's like. We feel that mm -hmm. we are right. We feel that we are smart. We feel that we are good. We feel that the plans we make will turn out true. That's the feeling. That's the gut intuitions. So we make plans. We invest our resources in accordance with the plans and then Unfortunately, our plans often run into trouble, run into various issues that we did not anticipate. And that's the one of the biggest, biggest problems for growing companies is running into unanticipated problems. And those unanticipated problems often sink growing companies. So the planning fallacy is one of the biggest issues. So I'll give you an example. I'm working yeah. with a Pittsburgh. I worked in Pittsburgh with a company that does heavy manufacturing. So it's an entrepreneurial company opened up to address some of the problems with uh, inflexible heavy manufacturing there. And what they what happened there when I was giving a training to a group of leaders, including leaders from that company, was that they suffered from the planning fallacy when they bid on a project. You know, they would bid on a project, uh, they say two million of that they anticipated that it would cost and it cost them three million. They Wow. in a project that it said 5 million you know, cost them 8 million. And so that was a big problem for them. Continually, they underbid and they made much less profit than they anticipated. Sometimes they actually took losses right. on those projects. And so that was so a big a, problem. Is that, now, is that a mistake of we, optimism? That's a mistake specifically of the planning fallacy. Optimism is a broader category, and we can talk about that later. So right now, we're talk the planning fallacy was the biggest problem because the plans that they made for when they were bidding them, they were looking at their plans and they, hey, this is the plan, this is the implementation, and it cost them much more time and resources than they anticipated. Now, the fix for that was actually not that complex. What we did was made sure that they integrated their previous experience into their future bids. Because every time mm -hmm. what they didn't do was look at their past experience and see what kind of things went wrong to integrate that into their future bids into their future planning process. And once they started integrating their past experience into their future planning process, they were much better able to address the planning fallacy. So that's one of the fixes, one of several fixes for the planning fallacy is to make sure that you always use your past experience to inform your future strategy. Oh, well, that's super helpful. I mean, I guess I imagine if, if somebody's, you know, if somebody's implementing or has a documented process for however it is, you know, let's say it's their bidding process, and, you know, in the example you gave, 
uh, then they could just, you know, make sure that there's a, a step that they always follow that, you know, when you're making a bid, you know, make sure to look at the, what's happened in the past and, you know, and ask if that's being properly accounted for in, um, you know, in the, in, in the bidding process, so to speak, or, you know, same thing with any, I guess, any strategic planning question. Um, what's, yes, uh, exactly. It's any strategic planning, any strategic planning question. So if you have a large, pro like another firm that I worked with was an architectural firm that, again, mm -hmm. didn't incorporate, it just kept going forward, didn't anticipate past, it didn't look at past issues, it didn't incorporate them into its planning process, and that was a big problem. So this is a typical problem for smaller organizations that are growing that they don't anticipate and they don't build their past experience into their future plans. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look, I, th I think that's super useful for people. What, what's, an what's another really common with these entrepreneurial size business, another really common, like, I guess, fallacy or bias that, you know, that, that we fall prey to. So I talked about the optimism bias, and we can talk about that. That's a big one. People who are entrepreneurs tend to be very optimistic. They tend to be very positive about the future. They tend to be risk blind. And I say this as someone who is very optimistic and someone who is risk blind. This is intuitive for me as well. I think the mm -hmm. future, you know, the grass is green on the other side of the hill, the glasses have empty, things will go well. And actually, when you look at the research, that's a specific trait that's associated with entrepreneurialism because mm -hmm. the likelihood of success of enterprises is actually pretty small. I mean, we gave some right. statistics earlier, right? Two thirds fail by 10 years. So it takes someone who is more optimistic than the average bear out there to actually start up an enterprise. So it's not a right. bad thing to be optimistic. The problem is when you're unrealistically optimistic, when you actually give the wrong probabilities for what will happen in the future. So people who are risk blind, they don't tend to see risks. They don't tend to see problems. They just tend to see opportunities. And seeing opportunities is really important. But at the same time, if you don't have someone holding your feet to the ground, then you will only see opportunities and you won't see the threats and you will be tripped up by a lot of threats. And this is something that used to happen to me until I started using the very effective strategy of making sure that I have a pessimist look at my L estimates of the future. So it's not mm -hmm. simply about plans. This is simple. This is about what is the likelihood of a certain thing occurring or not occurring. So let's say, what is the likelihood that my bid will that uh, my that I will win a certain contract or not? That's kind of a typical situation where people tend to overestimate the likelihood mm -hmm. that they will succeed. What is the likelihood that somebody in my company will leave in a certain period of time. Key employee, one of the big problems, of course, for enterprises that are growing is that they don't anticipate that key employees are leaving. Mm. They don't train up right. others to actually replace these key employees. They don't have a succession plan. That's something that trips up a lot of people. Yeah. So this yeah, is another sort of that. problem that people don't, yep, that people don't think about. What are the risks that you're not seeing? So this optimism bias is a big one. Right. I mean, what one question I've I've asked clients is, like, okay, you got this, you got this developer that's taking care of this system. You know, like, what happens if he gets hit by a bus? Like, what happens to your entire business? <laughs> you know, and makes people realize, like, oh, you're right. Like, uh, like if that one guy gets like hit by a bus, like, that's it for us, <laughs> for the whole business. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, you know, our clients will kill yep. us. <laughs> like, we won't be able to perform. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So. Uh, so, so definitely hear that. Now, where do you know from your perspective? What do you tell people? Like, where do you find like a staff pessimist to add to to your roles? Hmm. 
Like, what do you, how you do you do that? Or what do, what do you, what do you, you do for that? I mean, like, do you have somebody sure. in your, in your company? Like, do you have an outside person you go to? Like, what do you do for that? For me, what I have actually is someone from inside my company. So my wife uh, is fortunately, so she works with me and uh, we combined. So I used to do consulting on my own for a while while I was a moonlighting academic. And then when I began to do this full time, when I transitioned away from academia doing this full time, my wife, all that time, she was doing consulting for nonprofits. That's her area of expertise. But then we decided to combine our businesses and we that's how we formed disaster avoidance experts. That, which is the company that uh, I run. And she mm -hmm. is a pessimist. So she thinks the grass is yellow on the other side of the hill. <laughs> <laughs> so she and <laughs> so she and I actually work well together. And one of the best ways that you can have optimists and pessimists work together is that you want optimists to generate the ideas and you want pessimists to improve the ideas. The bad way for optimists and pessimists to work together, which I see way too often, is for optimists and pessimists to be butting heads when they're during the idea generating stage, when optimists are saying, hey, these are great ideas and pessimists are saying, no, these are terrible ideas. And I've seen that mm -hmm. happen way too often, undermines team conflict, teams cause a lot of conflict. Much better is for optimists, you know, don't do the brainstorming with pessimists. Brainstorming mm -hmm. is typically done with a team and that's bad if you have a whole team doing brainstorming because pessimists it's very hard for them to control the impulse to criticize so what it's right, instead is much more effective is to have the opt yeah just have optimists the people who are optimists on your team do the brainstorming create you know the 20 brilliant ideas that they think are brilliant then pass those half-baked potatoes to the pessimists who will then do the constructive criticism choose the free ideas that actually you know make the most sense and then finish baking those potatoes into their you know <laughs> ideal form that you can actually implement <laughs> so that's right, well, a much better okay, way I for gotta, optimists and pessimists to work together Right. Okay. Well, that's super helpful, and I, I definitely appreciate the the baked potato analogy. But um, the you know that definitely makes me think of you know I know that you're familiar with uh, EOS Entrepreneurial Operating System, which is mm -hmm. you know uh, as you know I'm an EOS implementer and happy you know I definitely yes. believe and have seen how you know how much that helps and people getting clear on their vision and executing on it. Um, and one of the things about that model that you you know I'm sure you're familiar with that connects to what you're talking about is is this is that distinction between the visionary and the integrator you know integrator being kind yes, of the coo of type person or the mm -hmm. one who really is able to make things happen is very realistic uh and oftentimes is accused mm -hmm. of being a whole poker and a pessimist um yes. and yes. um you know and how the visionary is like coming up with you know that, that's the optimist always coming up with 20 new ideas that they even give the, mm -hmm. the same number there of like 20 new ideas a week um, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the integrator and the rest of the leadership team, like you said, is able to kind of identify the ones that are, you know, that are most practical, you know, and they could, they could really be carried out. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, but are certainly not the source, you know, the integrator is not the source, generally speaking of those, of those big ideas that are really going to change the world. Yes, absolutely right, Ben. So that for the, in the EOS system that it's already predefined structural roles. Now the challenges that I've seen when I go into an organization that has EOS as part of a structure is that the integrator and the visionary don't play well together because the visionary tends to be too attached to their 20 ideas and they think that mm -hmm. all 20 ideas are brilliant. Mm -hmm. Whereas what's very important for that optimist visionary to 
have it, and to understand is to develop the quality of humility. And that's not mm -hmm. something I've seen very often with visionaries, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a, often the way that EOS goes wrong, that the visionary doesn't have sufficient humility to actually hand off their ideas. They're too attached to the ideas. They think that all of them should be implemented. What they need to do is be humble and say, hey, I'm risk blind. You know, I have these great ideas, but I intuitively know that I don't see the risks in mm -hmm. them. So therefore, I will be humble and I will just hand them off to the integrator and others on the team who tend to be more pessimistic and for them to evaluate these ideas and just fully be comfortable. I have to be comfortable with them discarding 17 ideas. And that's something mm -hmm. that visionaries have a lot of trouble with, but they have to be comfortable. They need to learn to be comfortable with discarding these 17 ideas. And that's kind of where you have to choose to not go with your gut. Your gut intuition as a visionary, as an optimist, will be to say that all 20 ideas are brilliant mm -hmm. because our gut, our gut is not adapted. That system one that you're talking about, Danny Kahneman talks about, is actually not adapted for the current business environment. It's adapted for the Savannah environment where <laughs> we lived in small tribes of hunters and foragers and gatherers and had to had to have the fight or flight response and you know tribal instincts and intuitions so we're not adapted our gut reactions are just not adapted for the current environment so you need to be able to distance yourself do the uncomfortable thing distance yourself from these 17 brilliant ideas that you think are brilliant and instead trust the integrator as having more expertise in judging what is more risky or not from the ideas and then improving them going forward. So that is a, one way that the EOS goes wrong and it's very important for there to be that positive, supportive, collaborative relationship between the integrator and the visionary. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's. I mean, that's certainly built. That's certainly built into the way that you know that EOS is taught and that we teach EOS and that it's mm -hmm. that it's promoted. Um, and it's recognizing that you know that that integrator visionary relationship is like a uh, is like a marriage in many ways. And you know, finding people that could be the yin and the yang to each other uh, is not easy. And it's you know fi yeah. finding the right integrator or you know an, or to the point that you're making finding you know, a, a visionary that could be open and honest, open to criticism, open to, you know, with humility is, is certainly, a, you know, a big, a big challenge as well, uh, which is why, you know, in EOS, they say that, you know, we identify the tar part of the target market of, of somebody for whom or a company for whom EOS can work uh, is only is only among people who are really open and honest and more afraid of the status mm. quo than they are of change. It's actually part of the target mm -hmm. market because, like you said, if you don't have that open, honest, uh, you know, humble uh, attitude, then, um, yeah, then it's not gonna, you're not gonna be able to actually do the system. Um, and, yeah. uh, so that's definitely, uh, you know, a, a fair point. And, and that's actually kind of a perfect, uh, well, you know, maybe I was going to get to something else. Maybe we'll do the EOS piece first, since we already started talking about it. Um, mm -hmm. which sure. is, uh, you know, which is, which, which is how this, you know, something that we talked about before, in the conversation in our, and in our previous uh, conversation, which uh, which is, you know, for companies running an EOS that, you know, they're trying to use a system, they're creating traction and everything. And, you know, we talked about rock setting or, you know, quarterly priority mm -hmm. setting. What, what do you what do you see as as being the biggest, you know, pitfalls or mistakes that people are making in uh, in that process? 
What I see as the biggest pitfalls is when people become too attached to, to the rocks and they start to invest more resources into the rocks, into the goals than they should and not switching early enough, quick enough, when they find that the rock that they chose to take on is actually a Sisyphean task. And for those who don't get the reference, Sisyphus in Greek mythology is the, is the person who's condemned in hell to roll a boulder uphill that is completely impossible to get to the top of the hill mm. and then it kind of always bounces back and they and the sisyphus has to go back and the roll it back so that's why they call it a sisyphean task so you need to recognize that sometimes the rock that you took on is actually a sisyphean rock it's way too large mm -hmm. and that has to do with the optimism bias people often who are optimistic especially tend to take on rocks that are too large and they tend to not be successful in actually carrying these rocks up the hill but they tend but they don't recognize this they tend to try to keep carrying the rock and there is a specific cognitive bias here called the sunken cost fallacy mm, where right. we tend to invest too many resources where into a project that's not worth it we throw good money after bad because of our again emotional attachment we are uncomfortable telling other people on the eos team that hey i've chosen a bad rock <laughs> you know I'm, I'm gonna change my mind i'm gonna put this rock down it feels very uncomfortable it feels very counterintuitive it goes against your gut intuitions it feels like you're in the tribe in the team of the tribe you're losing status and that's one of the biggest problems from the tribal impulses that we inherited for our gut reactions this this desire to retain social status it's the same social status desire retention that caused the leaders of enron worldcom and tyco to make their terrible decisions about not admitting to, to the face. huge losses that the yep saving face right so that's a the big problem so this sunken costs causes people to be really uh, to make really some really bad decision about choosing rocks. Uh, well, not about the choosing rocks, the, about the actually carrying out the rocks that they later discover are Sisyphean. Right. Right. No. And it's, you know, that, that's great points. And, you know, and, and it goes to that optimism too, in terms of, you know, t you know, biting off more than you could chew, taking rocks that are too big or not, not, you know, not reasonable. I mean, this, the, the phrase we use, I'm sure, you know, most people are, are familiar with is, is that the rocks have to be smart. You know, the rocks, the quarterly priorities mm -hmm. that you're setting needs to be smart. They have to be, they have to be specific, uh, measurable, attainable, uh, you know, realistic and timely um that uh are relevant and timely excuse me they have to you know they have to be uh yeah they have to meet those requirements and yeah, i guess there's two ways i guess that you know you come into it as an eos implementer and working with a team there's two ways that you could come about that so you know one is you know trying to like tell people hey no uh, you sure that's you sure that's realistic or, or whatever try to talk people out of it um and the other way mm -hmm. um and and the truth is this this is really the way that eos implementers try to handle this issue because that the, the bias of either the over optimism or taking things that are too big instead of maybe a, a milestone rock like within that larger rock um and something that's more attainable um and the the way the way we handle it is is really to you know try to ask the questions open-ended questions to try to get people to yeah, as much as you can on their own realize if something's not smart or ask them you know is this smart mm -hmm. is this attainable is this is this specific enough will you know when it's done is it you know is it actually attainable also considering all the other priorities you want to take on i mean not just can it be done in the next mm -hmm. quarter but can it be done along with all the other things you want to get done in the next quarter do people have the bandwidth to do that and um you know and then and then if they still decide to do it anyway and then it turns out that they are not achieving it at the end of the quarter 
then number one, and I, I just did this with, uh, with, uh, with, with the leadership team yesterday, and they're, you know, setting a new set of rocks. And, um, you know, we spent a minute, you know, when we did our check-in, hey, what, which rocks were done, which ones were not done, and taking, okay, let's, let's assess ourselves. Well, why did we make mistakes? When we got this rock completion ratio, why did, you know, where did we go wrong? It's great on the stuff that we did, but where did we go wrong on the stuff that we didn't hit? Or, you know, we're, you know, you know, and, you know, usually it comes down to either either insufficient accountability mm-hmm. on the on the on the part of the people who are responsible to be driving a particular quarterly priority uh, or uh, and very often it really comes down to um, and sometimes it's lack of information that just people couldn't have known. But, other you know, very often it's yeah. going to exactly the stuff that you're talking about, which is. Um, you know, which is which is being overly optimistic or not not really making a rock that's attainable, um, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and if people have you know, if you, if you kind of let people sometimes make the mistake, and realize that they made the mistake and why they made the mistake, then they'll maybe you know they'll probably will internalize more uh, how they you know how, on their next set of rock setting on the next set of priority setting how to how to do that in a better way hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So th- and, that's uh, a very illustrative story, and that's clear. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess one other thing I wanted to I wanted to, to, to get to if we can before before we wrap up is uh, is is uh, you you wrote an article about the problem with SWOT analysis. So right. So some people mm-hmm. out there may be familiar in their in their in their own strategic planning with doing a SWOT analysis to be able to kind of focus on what they need to focus on in a better way. Uh, you know, which means which means identifying their strengths, their weaknesses, the opportunities, their threats, and then you know, and then and then making plans based on based on those identifications. And the SWOT analysis is just kind of a, a discipline or a method to use to focus your attention on that. But what are, what are the biggest mistakes people make in doing a SWOT analysis? What's the problem with how people do it? And you know, and obviously, what's the what's the remedy? <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. So the SWOT analysis, as you described, is a very common tool. And one of the problems we talked about is the optimism bias, the related problem, not quite the same, is the overconfidence bias, where people tend to be way mm-hmm. too overconfident about the quality of their decisions. So mm-hmm. there's famous studies showing that when people say they're 100% confident about something, you know, they bet the career, they bet, bet the farm, bet the company, they are actually right about 80% of the time, which is you know why so many of the small enterprises mm-hmm. fail, because you have less resources if you make a bet, bet the company bet, that's actually bet, betting the company. And if you're going to lose that bet 20% of the time, you know, in five years, you're, many people who make the bet will actually lose the company. And of course, many more will lose <laughs> it in 10 years. So this is a big right. problem. Oh, you know, that's the overconfidence bias. And what I see when I come into a company and when they do a SWOT analysis, which is pretty often, you know, something like over, over a third of the time, definitely, they've done a SWOT analysis. When they let me take a look at it, I see that they list way too many strengths, way too many opportunities, not mm-hmm. nearly enough weaknesses, not nearly enough threats. And that's to be expected mm-hmm. in a way if you do a SWOT analysis without compensating for cognitive biases, without compensating for the internal gut feelings that cause us to list too many strengths, too many opportunities, to be too risk blind as a leader and not look at mm-hmm. our threats, not look at our weaknesses. And so this is a huge problem. It gives leaders a sense of false confidence because they and they invest into their the 
strategic plan in accordance with the SWOT analysis, which is a big problem. So what a compensation for that, of course, is to look at much more at weaknesses and threats than you would otherwise. So again, list many more weaknesses, list many more threats. Ask someone who's a pessimist on the team or externally to help you list more threats, more weaknesses. You have to this has to be a trusted person, an objective person, one who is not kind of uh, under your control, so to speak, so that they are not going mm, to right. be afraid of speaking truth to power. So this is a mm -hmm. way to compensate for it. I'll give you an example. So there was a, a guy, Saraj, who was a tech startup founder and uh, his venture capital investors, they wanted him to get coaching from me once his company passed the $10 million in equity. So he showed me his SWOT analysis that he conducted. And I was surprised that he didn't list delegating tasks effectively as an area of weakness, because this is something mm -hmm. a lot of investors expressed as a concern. And mm -hmm. when I brought this up to Saraj, he was very defensive. You know, mm -hmm. clearly he was uncomfortable with talking about this issue. And he, even though he knew that it was an issue because he had this defensive tone and he was uncomfortable talking about it, he did right. not list it as a weakness. So, you know, in a part of his mind, he knew it's a weakness, but he did not want to admit it to himself. So this is something that's a problem for very many entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, they don't want to give control over their activities to others. So with Saraj, it was eventually when I showed him that, hey, if you actually want your company to grow beyond a certain level, if you want your company to get to that high level, if you want it to actually grow beyond uh, the 10 million mark and be a large, effective technology company, then you need to let go of control. You need to let other people do their jobs. And that's kind of hard to do for many people, for mm -hmm. many entrepreneurs, but eventually he was successful after talking about this, after seeing the reasons for it. But many entrepreneurs who do the SWOT analysis by themselves, without external guidance, without external input, will fail to list nearly enough weaknesses and nearly enough threats, in, and they will, will be really harmed. Their companies will be really harmed by this. I know it makes sense, and it, cer and it certainly is quite, you know, it takes a certain amount of artistry as well to be able to communicate with somebody and kind of get past that defensiveness and uh, and think about, uh, you know, and, and think about those some of those things that they're not thinking about. Um, and so that's, well, you know, kudos to having the, you know, having the ability to do that. Um, but, uh, but look, it's, I, I think, I think it was really valuable today. I think that, you know, when we got in touch with each other, um, uh, you know, I think this is an area that is, is extremely important. Um, and, uh, in terms of, you know, whether it's bringing on pessimists or, you know, overcoming our, our, you know, our tendency to be, to be overly optimistic or in terms of our planning, uh, and, uh, and in terms of our SWAN analysis and in terms of not focusing on the negatives, not focusing on the threats, not focusing on the setbacks and being able to in advance kind of account for those, um, I think is, uh, you know, to you know, to counteract those in our own planning, I think is is great information and great reminders, and definitely very scientific based, which you know, which which uh, which you know, which we which I appreciate. I know others will too, but uh, but yes, I, I know it's a huge value for people. Again, it's da disasteravoidanceexperts.com. You could hear more about uh, Dr. Tsipersky Gleb and his uh, and his work. You can get a lot more information about him there, or you know, get in touch with him if you need to. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's a great resource, and I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate you inviting me.
Definitely. Appreciate you having you on, and we'll see everybody else on the other side. Thank you very much. You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf.